You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we have UFC 261, Usman versus Masvidal 2, preview predictions and analysis, as well as two, yes, two other championship fights. This includes the straw weight, or I'm sorry, the women's flyweight championship bout between Valentina the Bullet, Shevchenko, defending her title against what some consider to be her toughest challenge to date, former strawweight champion, now flyweight top contender, Jessica Andraj. And then in the most anticipated fight of the card for me, the women's strawweight championship bout between the reigning defending strawweight champion of the world, Zhang Wei Li, who holds, who holds a record of 21 victories and one defeat, going up against the former strawweight champion, coming off of a victory, avenging her loss to the former strawweight champion, Jessica Andraj, that is Thug Rose Namajunas. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, guys, how's everybody doing tonight? We're back and we're ready to go with these UFC 261 predictions. This is probably one of the best cards from top to bottom that we've seen. A very, very solid card all the way around. And something that I'm really, really excited, and I think a lot of fans are excited to watch. Um, I guess we could talk a little bit about the UFC fight night that took place this past weekend with Robert the Reaper Whitaker getting another victory. That's now three in a row with one of his best performances to date. I mean, everything was working for Whitaker against Gastelum. Gastelum did have some success the later the fight went, but... It's funny because a lot of the things I predicted in my breakdown of the fight prior to it going down is what happened. And, and it's it's the, the classic story of Southpaw versus Orthodox, opposite stance fighters going up against each other. They're always going to have those certain weapons that always work, no matter who it is. With the Southpaw going for the check right hook into the straight left hand, you know, right hook right or uh, left hook you know you can you can wing them together with the looping punches the straight shots will work but in the terms of Whitaker versus Gaslam the best weapons that Gaslam was going to have was going to be that right hook and the overhand left or the left hook the straight left works but mainly it's those hooks because Whitaker's going to be moving around he's going to be pulling from the straight shots he's going to be pulling and countering He's going to look to land that cross high kick, which is something that landed for him right in the beginning of the fight in the first round. He went jab, right hand, went and then Witt or uh, Gastelum dropped his elbow to protect the body and moved his head over to the right side or the left side and ran right in to his right, ran right into the right high kick of you know, Whitaker, you know, because you go to slip the cross, you slip away from it, you run right into the high kick. So that cross kick, boom. Um, the good thing from Gaslam, though, is it didn't really land much after that. But another thing I mentioned that I didn't hear a lot of people mention in the breakdown leading up to the fight was Whitaker's front stop to the knee against Gaslam. That front stop to the knee is going to cause the opponent, which in this case was Gaslam, to stay at range and make it harder for them to, to push forward. It's also going to affect their movement because they're not going to be able to the uh, they're not going to be able to move effectively if you're able to constantly stomp that knee, whether it's a, an elliptical kick, which is like a front kick, or that side kick to the knee. You're keeping the opponent at your range. You're keeping them at your distance. Then you can use that, then take a slight step off to your 
left if you're orthodox. And then use that to get the outside angle to land the right hand, to land the right high kick, to land the right kick to the body. Um, the one thing I really liked from Whitaker in this fight was his ability to go 2-1 instead of 1-2. A lot of people will go jab, cross, but he was going jab or uh, cross and then a jab. So one or 2-1. So boom, boom, boom. And he was using that jab just beautifully. I'm going to watch some highlights and I'll kind of walk you through some of the little intricacies of the fight that I really liked. So... Let's see if I can pull these up really quick and we can discuss it a little bit more uh, here. Here's a few highlights. Let's see. I don't know. It's not going to be a lot of the fight, but, you know, it was just Whitaker constantly trying to move away. Gastelum was chopping at that inside uh, left leg of Whitaker because he wanted to move him. One, it's going to stop him from circling and using his lateral movement. Two, it's going to use that inside left low kick to direct Whitaker into the right hook of Gastelum and it's going to move him away from the left hand but if he lands that right hook it's going to move him into the left hand so that was the problem or that was the game plan really for Gastelum you know slip off to your right and then land that right hook or slip off to your left I'm sorry and then you're going to land that right check hook and then eventually look to set up the uh, overhand left a lot of up jabs from Whitaker. Whitaker doesn't throw a jab straight at you. He kind of lowers his level, slips off to the side, and then goes with an up jab. So it's coming at a different angle. His hands are really low, like we said. They're very similar in the way that they fight. That up jab was working well. That eventually was able to set up the one-two high kick. Um, even when Gastelum got Whitaker up against the cage, he would back up and he would go with that check left hook. Check left hook and move over to his left. So he would, he would slip, check left hook, move move laterally, slip, check left hook, move laterally, and then try to push Gastelum away. The one-two high kick landed flush on Gastelum. Um, even when he stepped in, he was able to kind of shoulder roll a lot of the right hooks of Gastelum, um, which is something we don't really see from Whitaker, but he did it very, very well. His defense looked to be improved. His overall game, this is just Whitaker upping his level. He moved to a completely different level in this fight. He would He would shoulder roll that check right hook, and then as Gastelum would come in, it would it would line him up for the right, the straight right hand. That's something that worked very well. Um, you know, left hook or uh, left hook to check Gastelum from stepping in, and then lowering his level, moving forward and initiating the body lock, which eventually was able to set up that outside trip. You trip out the the left leg of Gastelum with your left leg, and you drag him down and get that body lock trip. And then he was able to work from that half guard and uh, do some pretty good damage with that lockdown you know he had him in that lockdown position um, a lot of inside kicks a lot of pushing away a lot of kick and then step off in a side stance kind of like a, a wonder boy karate you know style side stance and then come in with the jab the check left hook and just stop Gastelum from ever being able to catch you and it would be fake the right hand jab you know he would land the right hand and he'd pull back with a high guard and then land a hook as Gastelum stepped in then he would go to the body lock when he would get close it was just constantly um, hook over the jab of Gastelum, jab over the hook, you know, fake the jab, go with the hook. Um, he would he would kind of stand in that little stance in, in orthodox and kind of fake and faint, fake and faint, bah! he would pop the right hand in. That's one thing that Whitaker's very good at is popping that right hand and stand at range, kind of playing with the distance, boom, pop the right hand in and land on the chin. Um, Gastelum, like I said, he was able to hurt him and catch him up against the cage later on in the fight. Um, primarily by just kind of winging forward. He would he would block a shot and then come forward and try to land. 
Whitaker did a really good job. There was one combination I really liked. I don't know if it's played out in these highlights. Yeah, here it is. So he would – let's see if I can slow this down really quick. I'm going to go play max speed, put it at half speed. Whitaker was getting pushed back to the cage, which is where you don't want to be against Gastelum because that's when he's able to cut off your movement. He's able to stop you from moving laterally, and whatever side you move into, you're either going to run into the wide right hook or the wide left hook. And the problem with that against Gastelum is with Whitaker, you have to be able to trap him and keep him in a direction and keep him in the direction of your wide shots. If you get him up against the cage, he can't move back. He has to move left or right. So he's going to run into the hooks. If you give him space and you play at range, that's when Whitaker can pull back and counter with the right hand. He can pull back and shoulder roll and counter with a high kick, which is what he did in this combination. And I will explain it really quick to you. It was in the second round. He was able to avoid the left, the wide overhand left and pull away from it. An orthodox. So he he moved his weight over to his right leg, kind of pulled away from it, shoulder rolled it a little bit, you know, to deflect some of the power if it was to land. And then as he stepped back, he shuffled his feet, boom, and snapped that lead left high kick in as Gastelum moved forward. So he blocked the punch and rolled with the right, rolled with the left hand. I'm sorry, did he roll with the left or the right? Let me let me watch it again. Yeah. So he rolled away slipped and rolled away from that left hand. And then as Gastelum moved forward, because he's going to rush in because he was off balance, he snapped that lead left high kick in. So he he rolled and then countered with a high kick because Gastelum was moving in. He was off balance, and he was going to come forward and run into it anyway. Um, Whitaker just looked phenomenal. Um, Gastelum didn't look bad either, though. That's that's the thing. Although he you know got outclassed in this fight, he still was able to defend a lot of the shots of Whitaker and uh, he was able to push the pace and try to land on him. He would land if he went two, three, four punches, you know, he would go left hook, left hook, straight left, try to land. And he would land at least one of those shots. Um, and, and the one thing about Gastelum is, you know, even after that, um, one, two high kick landed for Whitaker. He didn't let that kick land anymore at all during the fight. I mean, maybe it landed once or twice, but pretty much after it landed the first time, he was able to block that one, two high kick combination. He was able to get the timing, get the read on it and either block low and keep his hands high, like block the body with the elbows and keep the hands high or was able to slip and, you know, deflect some of the power off of it. That 2-1 was very good. He would even go two, step out to his right to then set up the left hook and get the torque in the hip. That's something Whitaker did extremely well. This is probably the best Robert Whitaker's looked in, you know, these last three wins. You know, it's just you're landing the left hook off the break, attacking with the inside low kick to move Gastelum into the left hook. Then as Gastelum tries to rush in, just pop, pop the straight, straight right, pop the straight right. Pull away from the overhand left of Gastelum to counter with the left hook. You know, pull away from the right hook to come over the top with the left hook from Whitaker. As the wide shots are coming, he would back up, pull back, and keep that high guard and just pull away from a lot of the punches. It was just everything was working for Whitaker. The punches, the kicks, the combinations. Um, the, the body block, or I'm sorry, the forearm block is mainly how Gastelum was able to block those high kicks. Um, that's something a lot of gyms teach. That's something I learned was instead of using a high guard to block the high kick or, or anything like that, you use your forearms and you move over to 
whatever side the kick is coming from, and you put the meaty part of your forearms out in front of your face, knuckles to your head, and then you can block it, and it's not going to hit the bones of your arms so much, which is going to cause a break. It's going to hit the meaty part of your arms, of your forearms, so it's going to deflect it, and it's going to take a little bit of the damage off of it that it would do if it was to hit, you know, your your uh, your bones in your arm, you know, like, but you know, if it was going to hit the radius or the ulna, I mean, if you want to get technical with it, that's what it would hit if it was blocked incorrectly and it could cause a lot of damage, could break your arm, etc. But Whitaker looked phenomenal. Like I said, he did get caught by Gastelum here and there, but overall 50, 44, I believe. So he won every single round. Um, even got a 10, eight in there and uh, Whitaker's got to get out of Sonya next. He can't get Vittori. Vittori can wait and get another opponent somewhere down the line, but you cannot give Whitaker anything else right now other than a title shot. It has to be title shot or bust. Has to be. No doubt about it. He deserves the next crack at Adesanya. And I like his chances. I think with this new kind of flow state that Whitaker is in with, with you know, chaining defense and, and footwork and angles and triangle steps and rolling and shoulder rolling and blocking and then countering with high kicks off the lead side off of the shoulder rolls and and the high guards I think he could definitely give Adesanya some problems I wouldn't go as far as to pick Whitaker at this point maybe with a little bit more research I think I could be leaning towards a pick for picking Whitaker to win but even if you don't like his chances in the rematch you have to give Whitaker Adesanya next so the next fight I would make is probably, you know, it has to be Whitaker versus Ad- or Adesanya versus Whitaker too. And I would do it at UFC. I don't know. What's the next pay-per-view 261, 262, maybe do it at 264 in July or 263. I think those are both great options. I think that if it was to get put on 264, that is the same card as uh, Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier three. So if you have Dustin Poirier versus McGregor three, and then the co-main event you have Gast or uh, Whitaker versus Adesanya two. Um, I, I like those. I like that card. I think that's a great option. So I would venture to say it's probably going to be in July. But Whitaker might want a little bit of time. He didn't take a lot of damage, but it was a lot of forward pressure. It was a lot of movement and, and slipping punches and moving because Gastelum just didn't stop moving forward. So he might want to take a little bit of time. Maybe it's in August or September. But I like putting it on that. International Fight Week card. And, you know, Adesanya just fought in March, so April, May, June, July. That's four months. Um, I, I like that idea. I think that's a great idea, but we'll see where it goes from here, obviously. Um, yeah, that's really all I'd like to talk about on this Adesanya or uh, Whitaker versus Gaslam card, you know, because we have to get into the big boy, the UFC 261, Mas- Usman versus Masvidal 2. We've got to get into those predictions. We've got to get into the breakdown for that card. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal main card, good prelims. Um, we're going to break down one prelim in particular, and then, um, you know, we'll obviously go into detail on the main card and the fights that are taking place on the main card. I'm really excited to get into this breakdown. I think it's a long time coming. I think it's a phenomenal fight. Um, all these championship fights are great. We've got Valentina Shevchenko and probably her toughest challenge to date aside from Amanda Nunes and Jessica Andrade. Um, former strawweight champion moving up to 125. She had that win over Caitlin Chukagian where she was able to catch her with a body shot dropper and uh, get the TKO. Now she comes in and she beats the number one contender in her first fight at 125. You're going to go and fight the champion because that division isn't that stacked. So now we've got Valentina Shevchenko versus Jessica Andrade. 
That's coming up. I mean, you've got Rose Nami Yunus versus Wei Li or Zhang Wei Li. Zhang Wei Li versus Rose Nami Yunus is the best fight on this card. It's the most technical. It is the fight I will spend the most time on breaking it down and how I think this can play out. And from a technical standpoint, from the grappling to the striking to the clinch work, I think it's just such an amazing fight. And it's going to be, I think it tops Joanna versus Wei Li which is a big, big ask because that was one of the best, probably the best women's fight of all time was Zhang Wei Li versus Joanna Yanzhecek, which took place at UFC 248, which, which funny enough was the last event before the coronavirus hit. And then we didn't get another event until May. So that was the last pay-per-view before the whole coronavirus pandemic went down. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited for this fight. I think that this is the best fight on the card. And then obviously Usman versus Masvidal too. Um, that's a lot closer of a fight than people, you know, give Masvidal credit for. Yes, he took it on six days notice. Yes, he did get dominated, but he had some good work. He he won the first round. There's a few things that I think Masvidal can do. Um, I think that with the work of Trevor Whitman alongside of Kamaru Usman, I think that that can, that can shut down a little bit more of the game of Masvidal, and it can cause a little bit more trouble for him on the feet, which in turn can set up the takedowns. If Usman is able to land good shots on the feet, it can leave Usman or uh, Masvidal open, leave his hips open, and leave him hesitant, and then get him the takedowns a little bit easier than something that you know, Masvidal was expecting a full out in the first fight, even though he took it on six days notice, like we said. Um, we're going to start with a mid, uh, with a prelim in the middleweight division. You've got Carl K, Baby K Roberson, who comes into this fight with a record of nine victories and three defeats, going up against Brendan All-In Allen, who holds a record of 15 victories and three defeats. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this fight. However, um, you look at Brendan Allen's last fight and he had a lot of trouble with the striking of Strickland, the jab, the one-two, um, the one-two-three, just the basic fundamental combinations. That's something you hear a lot of high-level coaches say. That's something you hear from Gaethje and Rose Namajunas and Usman's coach is fundamentals, 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 the jab, the right hand, the left hook, you know, chaining those fundamentals together is what wins world championships. Sure, you can have a big right hand. Sure, you can land, you know, roundhouse kicks or spinning back kicks, that's going to be problems for some people. But the fundamentals is what sets up the high-level strikes and what sets up the specialty strikes, whether it's a flying knee, a tornado roundhouse kick, a question mark kick, uh, a spinning back fist. It's all set up with the fundamentals or faking or fainting the fundamentals to set up those, you know, I, I, I you wouldn't call them specialty strikes, but the out-of-the-ordinary, you know, uh, I, I guess you could call them special strikes, but that's not really what they are. They're more just, you know, unique and unorthodox techniques. I guess you could call them the, the special moves. You know, if you're in a video game, you're going to want to land that axe kick. You're going to want to land that spinning hook kick. You're going to want to land that two touch roundhouse kick. So it's those specialty moves that people tend to look for in fights. And even if somebody gets a knockout with that, they don't realize that a lot of those knockouts not all of them, but a lot of them are set up off of fundamentals and off of using a jab or faking a jab or faking a right hook, faking a faking a straight right, faking a left hook and spinning into a real kick. You know, it's it's all of that stuff that's going to make it harder for the opponent to see those wide shots. But the fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals are what caused Brendan Allen 
a lot of trouble against Strickland. He's a great boxer. Now, when you look at Carl Baby K. Roberson, his last defeat was coming at the hands of Marvin Vittori. Um, he was a he lost via rear naked choke. He almost got guillotined, but he was able to get up on the fence, kick his feet off, and roll, and then obviously get out of that. But then it led his back to be exposed. Marvin Vittori got the hooks in, got the rear naked choke, and got the submission. Now, when it comes to Carl Roberson, he does have some submissions of his own. He does have a submission in the UFC against, I believe, his second to last opponent. Here, let's see. He lost to Marvin Vittori in June of 2020. So it's been a little bit, a little while, almost a year since we've seen Carl Roberson. Um, prior to that is when he got the submission in the third round over Roman Kapalov. Um, but one thing about Carl Roberson is he's a very, very solid and credentialed kickboxer. He fights out of southpaw. He's going up against the, I believe Brendan Allen fights out of an orthodox stance. Let's see. Got this pulled up. Hold on. Pull it up right here. Yeah, so Brendan Allen is primarily fighting out of an orthodox stance. He's got some good body kicks. That's something you'll notice from Brendan Allen is he's got a good right kick to the body, a good switch left kick to the body. But his main weapons and his main areas of victory are he does have some good knees from in the clinch. You can see him land those if he gets uh, pushed up against the cage or if he pushes an opponent back to the fence. He's going to get that tie plum. He's going to land knees to your body. He's going to land some good knees and elbows and punches from the clinch. And then he can land some strikes off the break, which is actually what caused a lot of trouble for Kyle Dawkins in their fight. Um, he is primarily a grappler, though. He's going to be looking to get the body lock, trip you, to take you down, take your back, and sink in a rear naked choke and get the submission. His best weapon is getting your back and getting that those hooks in, getting that forearm across the chin, grabbing the bicep, and getting that rear naked choke submission. Now, like we've said, we've seen Carl Roberson get submitted in his UFC career, but like Marvin Vittori and Brendan Allen are on different levels. And just judging off of how much trouble Brendan Allen had with Sean Strickland, I think that the the experience, the kickboxing experience, the striking technique, and the level of faking and fainting, whether it's a hip faint to get the outside foot to land the right hook into the left high kick, on um, those inside left or the inside low kicks from Carl Roberson, I think are going to cause a lot of trouble for Allen as he tries to to come forward. Obviously, Roberson's going to have to set it up with some fakes and feints, but he's very good at using the fakes and feints to gauge the distance, whether it's to one pull away from shots and you know, defend, or it's to set up the opponent and get him to expose himself and then land his kill shot and land his combinations. Um, overall, like I said, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this fight. I do think that Brendan Allen will get one takedown at least. I think he will either let Roberson overextend on a punch and he will shoot underneath, get the hips, work from a double leg into a single leg, into a body lock, and then get a takedown. Um, and then try to get some work done on the ground. But Roberson is good. He's got good defense on the ground. He's got good takedown defense and good ability to use that wizard, get up to his hip and get up to his feet and circle back off the cage. And I think that the striking level and, and the cleanliness of his technique on the feet is going to be a big problem for Brendan Allen. I think that he's going to leave himself open. I think those inside low kicks are going to chop Brendan Allen to pieces. I think the left body kick is going to land, and he's going to land that left body kick, pull back with a frame, and then land that right hook straight left 
right hook, straight left, left body kick, straight left, keep the left hand out there to keep control of the range and then follow through with that left body kick. I think all those things are going to work to Roberson's advantage. And I think Carl Roberson gets a decision here. Um, I could see him getting a finish, but he's not really too much of a finisher on the feet. Um, I think Sean Strickland was able to finish him, was able to knock him out. So, I mean, I guess you could go with a finish in this fight instead of decision. You know what? I'm going to go with it. I think that the first round will be close. Roberson will probably get taken down at least once or twice, but he'll find a way to get back up to his feet, get up on a hip, use that over or under position, um, use that wizard, get back up, get his hips out, and work at range. I think the left body kick, the inside low kicks, faking the jab to go with the right hook into the straight left is going to cause a lot of trouble. The strikes are going to be hard for Brendan Allen to see, and eventually he's going to leave himself open and get knocked out. So my pick is Carl Baby K Roberson to get the victory over Brendan Allen via a third round. Or you know what? I'm going to go second round. Second round TKO. I think he lands a body kick and then follows up with a straight left right hook, drops him, and gets that TKO finish. So Carl Baby K Roberson to get the victory over Brendan all in Allen and improve to 10 and 3. All right. Now we move to the main card up first in the light heavyweight division. You've got Anthony Lionheart Smith, who's ranked number six, who holds a record of 34 victories and 16 defeats, going up against the number 13 ranked rising contender. And uh, so not a newcomer, but a guy who a lot of people have a lot of hype behind. And that is Jimmy Crute, who comes into this record, this fight with a record of 12 victories and one defeat. Um, This is a close fight, a lot closer than a lot of people think. I think a lot of people come into this fight and immediately back Jimmy Crute just because of how the last two losses for Anthony Smith went. And then, you know, he got a win back against Devin Clark by using his grappling, by using that body lock to the outside trip and then working from the top and then eventually setting up that triangle, cutting the angle and getting the submission. He's working alongside his longtime coach in, you know, Mark Montoya from Factory X. I actually have an interview up with Mark Montoya on this podcast if you guys haven't had the chance to check that out yet. Um, this is a close fight, you know, and Smith has been in there. He, he's he's had trouble with guys who are able to out-grapple him, out-wrestle him, and use their strength from the top position. Jimmy Crute's a big guy. He's very strong. He's got a lot of power in his shots. He's got a really good one-two. That's what he caught Modestus Bukowskis with was that one-two. As he landed the body kick, he was kind of exposed. Um, when he landed that lead body kick, it left him exposed and wide open. And then Crute followed up with the one-two down the middle as that body kick was landing because his chin was up. It was exposed. Boom, dropped him, came in. Boom, landed the left hook, dropped him, and got the TKO finish against Modestus Bukowskis. Aside from that, he has a submission victory over Michael Olazacek, I believe his name is. Let's see. We can check that out. Um, Yeah, so he knocked out Modestus Bukowskis in the first round. He's got a submission victory in the first round against Michael Olazacek. He got that finish via a Kimura. Um, landed some good shots on the feet, but obviously was able to get in the scrambles and then eventually set up that Kimura from the top position. And then he has a submission victory. Let's see. A submission. Oh, so he lost to Misha Serkinov prior to that fight. He got caught in a scramble, got caught in a Peruvian necktie, and uh, got submitted by Misha Serkinov. And then prior to that, he has a knockout victory over Sam Elvey in the first round. 
Um, so he's got a lot of good victories. He's got a lot of good wins. Um, level of competition obviously would go to Anthony Lionheart Smith all day. He's been in there with John Jones. He's been in there with Alexander Rockage. He's been in there and defeated Alexander Gustafson, defeated Rashad Evans, you know, defeated Vulcan Uzdemir in a grueling war where he did get out grappled, um, but he was able to work in the scrambles and eventually find a way to get the back of. Uzdemir, I believe it was off of a body lock. He was able to just get up, reverse position, get the body lock, trip down. Um, Vulcan Uzdemir, get the hooks in and get the submission. And uh, yeah, he, they, they don't call him Lionheart for no reason. Um, the one thing I do think will cause him a lot of trouble are the low kicks of Jimmy Crute. He's got a very, very solid right low kick. I think that the, the lead leg of Anthony Smith is going to be there to get chopped to pieces. And if Jimmy Crute does come forward and and bum rush him and try to push and land the one-two down the middle and land the vicious combinations, he's got power. He can knock a lot of people out. Um, I do think Lionheart Smith can avoid a lot of that power. Um, if he fights close to how he fought in the first round against Glover Teixeira before it obviously went downhill, that's where I think Lionheart can get a lot of success. I think just popping the jab, popping the jab, pop the jab, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, two, three, one, one, you know, just moving, landing front kicks, but don't overexert yourself. Don't throw 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 punches in a row and then leave yourself open to get countered, number one, and to also overexert yourself, get tired, and then leave yourself open to counters because you're not there cardio-wise, so it's going to make your reaction time slower and you're going to get caught with the big shots of Jimmy Crute. Um, the biggest punches he's going to have to look out for or the biggest combinations I would say that he has to look out for from Crute is the one-two down the middle and then that follow-up left hook. He's got to watch out for the two-three. He's got a beautiful left hook and a beautiful one-two. Um, if he lands on the chin of Anthony Smith and pushes forward and pushes the pace immediately, he can cause a lot of trouble for a guy like Anthony Smith. You have to get him off guard. You have to get him off. Before we got cut off, obviously, I, I didn't see that the timer had expired, so we have to go back and explain some things. Um, if Kroot pushes forward and pushes the pace immediately, he can definitely catch Anthony Smith off guard. If you let Smith get into a rhythm and let him land the one-twos, the one-two uppercut hook, the uppercuts and hooks, the jabs and crosses, getting you up against the cage, that's where you're going to you know, fall behind and let Smith dictate the pace. If you push forward immediately, like Devin Clark did, like we said, you immediately come forward, land a one-two as Smith is kind of moving away in that side stance. And uh, you, you land over the top and land and drop bombs. That's when you're going to beat Anthony Smith. You don't let Smith get into a rhythm. You're going to cause problems for him. But the thing is, with Jimmy Crute, the level of competition is, is levels below Anthony Smith. He has a win over Modestus Bukowskis. He has a win over Michael Oleksiejczyk. You know, he has a win over Sam Elvey. So he has some good wins. He lost to Misha Serkinov. But the problem is he hasn't been in there with the best of the best in the division. Anthony Smith has been in there with the best of the best that uh, 205 pounds has to offer. The best of the best, without a doubt. And that's going to be problematic for, you know, somebody like Jimmy Crute. He fought Misha Serkinov. He he obviously knocked out Modestus Bukowskis like we already talked about with the 1-2 as the lead body kick was coming through. He timed it, boom, boom. You know, he's got that left hook as he, as he hurts you. His combinations, his boxing, his movement, his low kicks are clean. His top control, his ability to set up submissions, whether it's a Kimura or, you know, a guillotine or looking to, to snatch your arm and get that leg over the head 
you know, and then pop and twist with the with the Kimura, he can get those submissions, and he has gotten them. He has good hands. He's got good grappling, got good wrestling. He's got a good ability to chain takedown attempts together, whether it's a single to a double to a body lock to a trip to a back to the double, back to the single leg, back to the double leg. You know, chaining takedown attempts together, you know, drag and redrag with the opponent. That's going to cause some trouble for Smith. But the problem is I think that I think that Smith, if he fights like he did against Glover Teixeira early in that fight, but just doesn't put out as much volume as he did, he can definitely cause Crute some problems. He's going to want to be a little bit more defensively minded in this fight than maybe some other fights because you don't want to overextend and eventually get caught with that 2-3. If he gets caught on the chin, he can definitely get hurt and get dropped by a guy like Jimmy Crute who's got big power for 205 pounds. This is a big opportunity for Jimmy Crute. It's a big opportunity for Anthony Smith to prove, hey, I'm not going anywhere, you know? Like, I got that win over Devin Clark after a two-fight losing streak. I'm here to beat Jimmy Crute. These young kids aren't going to make an example out of me, and I'm going to get this victory. You know, it's a it's a win-win. It's a must-win for both guys. Um, you know, Smith loses here. He goes way down in the rankings. Jimmy Crute loses. Hey, he lost to a top contender. He can work his way back up. But this is a big win, a thing for Jimmy Crute where he wants to win, but it's a must win for Anthony Smith, in my opinion. Um, overall, I think that the I think Jimmy Crute's going to be patient in the beginning. I think he's going to hurt Anthony Smith on the feet. Um, he's going to catch him as Smith tries to land that left hook from that side stance. He's probably going to catch him with a one-two. He's going to hurt him. He's going to go in, try to chop the low kicks on Anthony Smith. He's going to get a little bit over eager and go to take him down. And then in the scrambles on the ground, he's going to, he's going to get caught up in a scramble. Anthony Smith's going to take his back, sink the hooks in and get the submission. I'm going to go with Anthony Lionheart Smith to get the win here via a rear naked choke in the second round. I think the first round it's going to be close, but Crute's going to pick it up, land those low kicks, make it a little bit harder for Anthony to move, land the ones and twos, probably get a takedown here and there. But I think towards the end of the first round, if he does get a takedown, that's where Smith's grappling is going to come into play. We're going to see a lot of scrambles, you know, getting up on the hip, getting to a wizard, you know, spinning to the back. And then the opponent reversing, going for a double leg, going for a single leg, sprawl out, whizzer, spin to the back. You know, a lot of going for the back and then getting a Gramby roll and the bottom fighter gets top position. I think there's going to be a lot of that here, but I think Smith's going to come out on top in that second round. Kind of like in the Vulcan Uzdemir fight, I see it being a little bit similar to that one. And then he's eventually going to get the back in the scramble, get the hooks in, get the neck, get the rear naked choke, and get the win. So my pick is Anthony Lionheart Smith to get the victory over Jimmy Crute via a second round rear naked choke. All right, now we move to a fight in the middleweight division. You've got the number nine ranked fighter on a three-fight win streak in Uriah Primetime Hall, who holds a professional mixed martial arts record of 17 victories and nine defeats, going up against the number 11 ranked former middleweight champion with two victories over Anderson Silva, a win over Leota Machida, a win over Vitor Belfort, a win over Kelvin Gastelum. That is Chris, the All-American Wideman, coming into this fight with a record of 14 victories and five defeats. Um, this fight's close, but it's not as close as some people think, in my opinion. I think that, obviously, these two have fought before. They fought on the regional circuit. Um, I believe Wideman hurt him on the feet, dropped him, and then eventually got a TKO victory. And this was back, but right before Wideman got into the UFC. It might have actually been the fight that got him into the UFC, was this TKO finish over 
Uriah Primetime Hall. Now, Hall in his career, he came off the Ultimate Fighter, you know, being considered to be the next Anderson Silva. Chael Sonnen was hyping him up. You're a top contender. You're a contender. You know, he lost in the finale to Kelvin Gastelum, who uh, obviously just out-wrestled him, out-grappled him, outpaced him, and, and didn't let Hall get into a rhythm. He then, you know, had some good wins. A win over Chris Lieben, a spinning back kick, and a TKO over Gegard Mousasi, which looks very good at the current point. You know, he, he has some good wins. He's got a win over Anderson Silva in his last fight. He was able to knock out Anderson Silva. He had a win over Christoph Jotko. He had a win over Bevon Lewis. I believe those were his last three wins. I believe it's Bevon, excuse me. I think it's Bevon Lewis. Uh, ugh, excuse me, guys. <laughs> Bevon Lewis. Let me see. Let me see. I, I'm pretty sure it was Bevon Lewis. Then here, hold on. I can't think of this last guy. Hold on. All right. So Antonio Carlos Jr. Okay, here we go. So he beat Bevon Lewis. And then prior to that, he lost to Paulo Costa at UFC 226. That was a pretty close fight. You know, he did pop Paulo Costa with the jab a lot. You know, did beat up his face a little bit. He So he knocked out Bevon Lewis in the third round of a fight he was losing. He beat Antonio Carlos Jr. via decision. He knocked out Anderson Silva then at, in the fourth round of their fight at the UFC fight night on Halloween of last year. So now he's coming in against Weidman. Now Weidman is coming in off of a victory over Omari Akhmadov, where it was a lot of, you know, grappling, switching takedowns, you know, single to double to body lock to trip to double leg to single leg, controlling on the top, you know, just constant takedowns and pressure from Weidman. If he goes with a takedown and, and wrestling heavy pressure game, he can cause Uriah Hall a lot of trouble because Hall has had problems with people who are able to push him back, work the takedowns, work the wrestling, get in top position, control him on the ground, and eventually set up a, a submission. This is something I can definitely see Weidman doing. The problem is I think when it comes to cardio, I think that Weidman has drastically dropped off in terms of his cardio ability to push a pace the later the fight goes. Even against Omari Akhmadov, I know it's, it's a very, very – cardio heavy game plan to just go with takedown after takedown after takedown, whether it's double to single head on the inside, single turn the corner, dump, go to the back, go to get the hooks in. If he gets up, go to body lock, go to trip takedowns, go to body lock, trip takedowns to move back from single leg to double leg, run the pipe back to the single, you know, working those takedowns over and over again is going to be a big thing, a big problem for your gas tank. With those takedowns, you know, it's going to make you tired. And that's something that he had against Omari Akhmadov in the second round, end of the second round, into the third round. Yes, he won. Yes, he controlled him, but he got sloppy. He was very tired. The more he moved, it was just problems for him. And one of the problems I think that he has is he went into this karate style side stance like a Wonder Boy Thompson. Weidman is not like a Wonder Boy. And if you fight in that karate side stance against a guy like Uriah Hall, who's under the tutelage and the coaching now of Safe Sayud, who I also have an interview with on my podcast, um, he has refined his game. He's gotten the mental game of Uriah Hall up to a level that it's never been at. 
He's always had the physical ability on the feet. You know, this guy basically looks like he comes out of a Tekken video game with spinning hook kick knockouts, spinning back kicks, you know, jumping tornado roundhouse kicks, you know, front kicks, back kicks to the body, one twos, pull counters, you know, cutting angles and using a lot of footwork and movement and fakes and feints. You know, I think that he's always had the physical ability. It's just in big fights. It was the mental ability. He couldn't show up. He was he was too nervous. He had too much anxiety, and it would cause him to not pull the trigger and not show up in big fights. Now he's on a three-fight win streak. You know, now he's got the coach who can fine-tune that mental ability. You know, he said in the interview that I had with Safe Sayud that he had a lot of trouble getting ready mentally for this for the fight against Anderson Silva. He was like, Coach, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't believe it. It's Anderson Silva. Oh, my God. And he had trouble in the first round. He kind of just stood there, stood in the mirror, didn't do much, and Silva was able to use a lot of fakes and feints and pick him apart. But then as the fight went and kept on going, he was able to just find the openings and then counter. He never overextended. He never really went with a lot of heavy combinations. It was probably some of the lowest amount of output we've seen from Uriah Hall, but he was able to pull back and counter with the shots of Anderson Silva, pull and counter over the top with the left hook with the right hand, um, over the top with the right hand when Silva was in southpaw. And, you know, he landed, and, and it was it was good. Good work from, from Uriah. He dropped him at the end of the third round, almost got the finish. They went into the fourth round. Then he was able to drop him and get the TKO victory over Anderson Silva. I think that's going to boost the confidence of Uriah Hall I think that Weidman can definitely get it done if he sticks to a wrestling-heavy game plan and suffocates and look for the arm triangle or the rear naked choke when Uriah Hall tries to get up to his feet. But I think that on the feet at distance, Uriah Hall picks Chris Weidman apart. I know Weidman's got good striking, but his cardio, he just seems like he's fallen off lately. I know he's coming off a win, but he doesn't look the same as he looked in that fight against Jacare Souza. And even in that fight, his striking looked great. The 3-2 down the middle, the 1-2-3, the 1-3-2. They were landing, and his striking looked great in his defense. But the longer the fight went, the pace and pressure, you know, Weidman eventually with body shots and everything like that, it, it caused his gas tank to drop and then eventually left his head open. You work the body, the head follows. You work the head, the body follows, you know, something like that. And that's something I think that Uriah Hall is going to take advantage of. I think he's going to look to set up a lot of front kicks to the body, but he's going to have to set them up behind the fakes and feints. You know, fake the jab, go with the front kick, fake the cross, take that little stutter step forward, fake the front kick to the body, get uh, Chris Weidman to shoot in, and then maybe go with a knee up the middle as he shoots. I could see that working. I could see a lot of faking uppercuts on uh, Chris Weidman just to make it hesitant for him to shoot the takedowns. I think Safe Sayud would probably work on that with Uriah, probably fake the jab, maybe jab, fake the uppercut, go to straight right, left hook, something like that. I think we're going to see a lot of fakes and feints, make Weidman hesitant, and then he's going to leave himself open. I think it's going to be similar to the Dominic Reyes knockout. He's going to overextend on a right hand. Um, Hall probably might, he may be in southpaw. He does switch stances here and there, but primarily an orthodox fighter. I think he throws the punch. Hall's going to pull, counter, drop him. And uh, I think he gets the TKO victory here. It's a close fight because you don't know what the wrestling of Weidman, he might be able to control and dominate Hall in the wrestling department. But his defense and his defensive jujitsu and takedown defense has gotten better in his career. And he's not as easy to take down. And even if you get him down, he's not as easy to control on the ground. So I think that he finds an opening. Hall or uh, Weidman kind of throws a shot, overextends, get caught, gets caught by Uriah Hall, and gets finished. I'm going to go with Uriah Primetime Hall to get the victory over Chris Weidman via a third round 
TKO. All right, now we move to the first of three championship fights. Up first in the women's flyweight division, you've got the champion, Valentina the Bullet Shevchenko, coming into this fight with a record of 19 victories and three defeats, going up against the former strawweight, reigning defending strawweight champion, and the current flyweight contender, number one contender, I should say, Jessica Bateastaka. Andraj, who comes into this fight with a record of 21 victories and 8 defeats. This is a close fight. It's it's close no matter where the fight goes. Um, I think it's a dangerous fight for Valentina. It's an equally dangerous fight for Jessica Andraj, depending on how the fight takes place. The thing is, when you're a pressure-heavy fighter and you use a lot of head movement to move in and land your left and right hooks and left and right hooks and your, your hooks over the top, Jessica Andrade is, is a newer, more refined version, a female version of Vanderlei Silva. It's head movement. It's kind of shoot the box style. He's coming in, hooks, 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 hooks. It's not a lot of technique, but she finds a way to get on the inside, find the openings, and land the left and right hooks. And one thing is, she was one of the strongest girls in that strawweight division before she made the bump up to flyweight. And I think that the strength here of... Jessica Andraj can cause some trouble for the, the bullet Valentina Shevchenko. Her pace and pressure could give her some problems, but it can also cause her to run in to the kicking game of Valentina Shevchenko. With Valentina Shevchenko, it's all about technique. It's all about, you know, footwork and, and kind of keeping that Thai boxing, you know, Muay Thai style with the, the light on the front leg and the hands really high. You know, and then she just finds them. She waits. She waits. She blocks and counters. She'll block a kick, counter two, three, inside low kick, block a kick, boom, boom, body kick. You know, it's all about blocking and catching and 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 finding the shots, catching the kick and returning with a kick. You know, and eventually looking to set up that left high kick and the right hook. She uses a check right hook, straight left, and a right high kick. That's going to be the weapons for Valentina Shevchenko. She also has really good wrestling, very good ability to get. Um, the body lock and work with takedowns or get into a, you know, judo game and use the head and arm throws to get top position. And then she works really well from side control and then eventually looks to work into a crucifix position. If the fight goes to the ground, I think Valentina Shevchenko dominates Jessica Andrade. She finds a way to get on the ground. She gets him into the, gets her into that crucifix position and lands good punches and, 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 you know, eventually sets up the TKO working from that crucifix position. I think she can get takedowns. I think she can work from the top. But on the feet, it's a dangerous fight. You know, Andrade hits hard. She she is going to come forward. She's going to put the pressure on Valentina. It's going to be hard for her to get in, and it's going to be hard for Jessica Andrade to get in with the the you know the 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 game at range that Valentina likes to play, staying at range. Looking to land body kicks, looking to land the front kicks to the body, then setting up a high kick, the hooks to the high kicks, the boom, 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 jab, cross, hook, low kick, one, two, spinning back kick. It's all those combinations that are going to cause Andrade to be a little bit hesitant. But the thing is, before she would keep her head on the center line and move forward, that's what caused her to get caught. That's what caused her to get trouble, to get in trouble with Wei Li Zhang which was turn you know she ran in with the wide shots on then uh Wei Lee countered boom countered with the right hand down the middle and hurt her 
So if she uses the head movement like she did against Rose Namajunas, you know, slip the jab, roll the straight right, and then comes in, hook, 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 hook to the body and to the head. Hook to the body, hook to the head, hook to the body, hook to the head. You know, constantly working with those hooks and pace and pressure, the longer the fight goes, it can cause trouble for the champion, Valentina Shevchenko. You know, records, as we said, 19-3 and for the champion to 21-8 and for the challenger. This is... Valentina Shevchenko's toughest fight to date. There's no doubt about it. It's a hard fight. It's tough. It's not an easy fight for her to get through. You know, but it's an equally as tough fight for Jessica Andrade because she's open for counters. She's open for punches and she's open for that kick as she slips and rolls away from the straight punches. Um, here's how I think this fight plays out. I think it's a close first round. I think Andrade puts the pace, puts the pressure on her. Maybe lands a good shot and hurts Valentina. I think that can be a problem for her. I do think that Andrade can catch her as she's moving away and uh, land with a big hook and knock her out. She does have knockout power, and that is something I could definitely see. Um, however, I think that the wrestling and the high kicks of Valentina Shevchenko are going to be the killers against the pile driver, Jessica Andrade. I think that with her slipping and rolling style of head movement now, I think we're going to see a lot of feints into high kicks and body kicks for Valentina Shevchenko. I think she fakes, goes with an inside low kick, fakes, goes outside low kick, and then works to the body, then fakes body, then goes up to the head. I think she's going to catch her on the slip, land a high kick, hurt her, and drop her. And then I think she gets on top, gets in that crucifix position, and pounds her out like she did to Caitlin Chukagian. It's a tough fight. It's a close matchup. But I expect the champion, Valentina the Bullet Shevchenko, to retain her strong, her women's flyweight championship. And after this fight, they've got to make Amanda Nunes versus uh, Valentina Shevchenko number three. I know Amanda Nunes has won both the fights, but they need to make a third fight. We just heard that Nunes is going to be fighting Juliana Pena. So after that fight, if Nunes gets through that, we need Valentina Shevchenko versus Amanda Nunes number three. But yeah, my pick is Valentina the Bullet Shevchenko to get the victory via TKO due to ground and pound, dropping her with a high kick prior to that in the third round. All right, now we move to the co-main event of the evening in the women's strawweight division for the women's strawweight championship of the world. You have the former reigning defending strawweight champion, the number one ranked thug Rose Namajunas coming into this fight with a record of 10 victories and four defeats going up against the current reigning defending strawweight champion Zhang Magnum Wei Li who holds a record of 21 victories and one defeat losing her first pro MMA fight and then going on a 21 fight win streak to a lot of people this is the fight of the night this is the best possible fight on the entire card this is the closest fight. This is the most technical fight out of everything listed on the card. And they're right. I think this is definitely the best chess match, the most technical style of fight. I think it's going to be a full display of mixed martial arts, including striking, clinch work, grappling, wrestling, submissions. I think we're going to get a taste of all of it, but I think the main majority of this fight is going to take place on the feet. And it's dangerous for both girls in different areas. Uh, let's look at some of these stats. Obviously, we've already talked about the records. When it comes to height, uh, the champion Zhang Wei Li comes into this fight 
she's 5'4". The challenger is 5'5". So a one-inch height advantage for Thug Rose, she's going to want to use that reach and range to the best of her ability. Um, a two-inch reach advantage for the challenger and Thug Rose with a 65-inch reach to a 63-inch reach for the champion, Zhang Weili. And then leg reach, 36 inches for Zhang Weili to 39.5-inch leg reach for Thug Rose Namajunas. So Namajunas is the longer, taller, rangier fighter. Um, Zhang Weili had, doesn't have a big, uh, she has a shorter reach. She's a little bit shorter, but what she lacks up for, what she lacks in reach and, you know, leg reach and height, she makes up for in power. When you look at the win percentages, um, wins coming by way of knockout for the champion. It's a 48%, 48% of his, her victories coming by way of KO to 10% for Thug Rose Namajunas, 33% of her wins coming by way of submission to 60% of the wins coming by way of submission for Thug Rose Namajunas, and then decision 19% for the champion to 30% for the challenger. When you look at average fight time, it's pretty close on both sides. 11 minutes, 53 seconds for the champion Zhang Weili to 12 minutes and 33 seconds for Thug Rose Namajunas. Knockdown averages per a 15-minute fight, again, really close, neck and neck, 0.25 for the champion Zhang Weili to 0.36 for the challenger Thug Rose Namajunas. When you look at significant strike percentages, uh, significant strikes landed per minute, 6.38 for the champion to 4.13 for the challenger Thug Rose. 45% significant strike accuracy for the more active striker, which is Zhang Wei Li, to a 40% accuracy rate for Thug Rose Namajunas. So not only does Wei Li, does Zhang Wei Li land more strikes per minute, she's also more accurate with the strikes that she throws. When it comes to significant strikes absorbed per minute, Wei Li takes a little bit more than does the challenger Thug Rose. 4.43 strikes absorbed per minute to 3.98 absorbed per minute for challenger. With defense, it is a 53% striking defense for Zhang Wei Li to a 60% defense for Thug Rose Namajunas. When it comes to the grappling, uh, the stats are a little bit interesting here. 1.26 takedowns per a 15-minute fight for the champion Zhang Wei Li to 1.91 for Thug Rose Namajunas. Takedown accuracy, you know, a 23% accuracy rate for Zhang Wei Li. She is not the best takedown artist. Um, she uses her power and her strength to get some throws and head and arm throws and clinch tosses, but primarily doesn't shoot takedowns, and she's not very accurate with them when she does. Thug Rose is more active in shooting the takedowns, although it's close, and she's also more accurate in getting the takedowns with 53% takedown accuracy compared to 23, like we said, for the champion. When it comes to takedown defense, this is a big discrepancy here. Zhang Wei Li, the champion, has never been taken down. She's got 100% uh, takedown defense to 50% takedown defense for Thug Rose Namajunas. So Namajunas can get taken down. She is a small, lanky, you know, she is smaller and lankier for that division, but she's what she makes makes up for what she lacks in strength and power. She makes up for in crisp te technique, her range management, and her, her distance control. When it comes up to submission average per 15 minute fight, 0.51 for the champion Zhang Weili to a 0.84 for Thug Rose Namajunas. Now we've broken down all the stats. Um, obviously, as you can see. Rose is going to be the taller, longer, rangier fighter. She's going to want to stick just outside 
of kicking range and then hop into kicking and punching range. She wants to keep Wei Li at the end of her strikes. She doesn't want to get in close unless she's going for clinches, but even in the clinch positions, whether it's an over-under or a double-under, she doesn't want to be there because in the clinch, Wei Li is very good with framing off the head and landing elbows, landing knees, and her elbows and her knees from inside the clinch and her overall strength is going to be a big problem for Rose if they do tie up. That's something Rose does not want to have to deal with. Now, you look at you know recent fights, Rose obviously had two wins over Joanna Junjacek, knocked her out in the first round at UFC 217, and then came back and beat her via unanimous decision, I believe, at UFC 223 in the rematch. She then went on to fight Jessica Andraj at UFC 237 and had a phenomenal first round, probably some of the best work we've ever seen Thug Rose put on, just her timing, her range management, the one-two, the fakes and feints, um, the pivots and the angles, and everything was looking so good for Rose Namajunas. It was it was on her way to a flawless victory. She even dropped Andrade, whether it was off balance or not, she dropped her with some knees from inside the clinch. Obviously, she then got caught in a you know high crotch position. She went to counter it with the Kimura and then look to either when she got elevated, change it into an arm bar or use that Kimura grip to stop Andrade from picking her up and slamming her. However, there was a little miscalculation the second time that she went for that, and she was able to break the Kimura grip, and the grip was wrong, so it allowed for Andrade to pick her up and drop her on her head. They don't call Andrade Bareatasca for nothing with the... Astaka, I'm sorry, Bate Astaka, the pile driver for no reason. She can pick you up. She can slam you on your head. She's the more powerful girl, and the power is what trumped the technique and the finesse of Thug Rose Namajunas in that fight. Now you look at Zhang Weili. She knocked out Jessica Andraj in the first round of their title fight. Andraj was wild. She was winging her hook. She got countered with a straight right, got caught in a clinch position, knees and elbows. Andraj framed off, or uh, Weili framed off the head of Andraj and landed elbows over the top of the clinch, knees, elbows, elbows, knees, dropped her, jumped on her, and got the first round finish in China to become China's first ever UFC world champion. Uh, Rose Namajunas then got the chance to face Jessica Andrade again in the rematch at UFC 251. And in the first round, it was, it was, it was a bunch of the same thing from the first fight, you know, faking and fainting, you know, faking the right hand, just leaning over a little bit and then popping in the right hand to, to, to confuse Andrade on the range, popping the jab, you know, using pity pat strikes, then set up the one, two using pity pat strikes, slapping with the hook, faking the kick, jab, jab, one, two faking, you know, fake the right hand, dart in, and then hit, and then hip bump in on the left to avoid the wide shots of Andrade. Use a lot of slips, rolls, head movement, controlling the range, kicking front kicks and round kicks from range. She did get caught in the fight and got hurt, but was able to survive and continue moving forward. It was a high-paced fight, a lot of pressure from Andrade that Rose had to counter with pivots and angles and, and her jab and just constant fakes and feints to throw off Andrade and counter the long looping shots with the straight, crisp, technical punches that we see from Namajunas. There is not a more technical fighter in the strawweight division than Thug Rose Namajunas. Everything she does has a purpose. Everything she does is used to control the fight. She is ne she never wants to be out of position. Of course, she all every once in a while she gets caught out of position, and pressure fighters can give her some trouble. However, it was harder. I think it's going to be harder for 
Rose to deal, or it was harder for Rose to deal with the pressure of Andrade than it's going to be for her to deal with the forward pace and pressure of Zhang Weili because Weili doesn't really move her head. There's not a lot of head movement. There's not a lot of slips and rolls and pivots and angles. She basically moves forward. She'll kind of have that light on the front front leg, you know, Thai boxing style, Muay Thai style, or she'll just stand in a traditional boxing, kickboxing stance. And sometimes she'll go light on the front leg. Sometimes she'll faint with her hip, faint with the right hand, faint the hip to fake a kick, fake the hip, boom, throw a front kick, fake the hip, boom, throw a lead body kick. There are some hip feints and some hand feints that she likes to use to kind of draw out attacks from the opponent, but it's nowhere near the level of a girl like Thug Rose Namajunas. The fakes and feints are going to be a big problem for Zhang Weili. The range management, the control of range is going to be a big problem. The thing about this fight is Rose has to keep it at range. She can't get in close and stand in boxing range and trade with Wei Li. If she trades with Wei Li in a boxing range, she's going to get clipped, she's going to get hurt, and she's going to get stopped. Wei Li is the bigger power puncher. She has the power to knock out Rose Namajunas. There's no doubt about it. And if you don't think so, then I don't know what you're watching. But people underestimate the technical ability and the ability for Rose to fight just outside of range and dictate where the fight takes place in terms of her range compared to the opponents all the time. She can be just inside a range, you know, step in and step out, step in, step out, step in, step out. One thing I was very impressed with in the fight against Andraj was, you know, being able to counter a lot of the wide shots by pivoting away. She would turn on that lead foot and pivot, you know, pivot away from the big shots, pivot towards the big shots to take some of the power off of them and crowd the shot and turn away. You know, when you do that, when you pivot into a power shot, if you don't have a guard up, obviously it can cause trouble. But if you pivot just before the power comes from that side, you can take a lot of smoke and a lot of, a lot of firepower off that shot and avoid it completely. When, when Wei Li gets it going, the main, the main techniques that Whaley likes to use is that inside low kick, the left hook, and the straight right hand. Sorry for that brief interruption. As you can hear, you know, Ronda Rousey's pregnant. <laughs> but um, we'll go back to talking about Rose and Rose Namajunas and, and Zhang Whaley. So what we were talking about is Rose's ability to pivot. And the reason I think that causes a lot of trouble for Whaley is because when she lands her power shots, if it's in combination – she likes to go punch, 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 kick. So jab, cross, hook, low kick, jab, cross, hook, low kick. Or, you know, use that inside low kick to drag that lead foot towards the power right hand of Whaley. She likes to touch, boom, inside low kick, jab, hook, inside low kick, jab, cross, drag it backwards, throw the hip into the inside low kick, and then fire the right hand. You know, it's a lot of combinations ending with a kick. She's also very good at, you know, catching opponent's kicks and and pulling them into the right hand left hook or catching a kick, picking it up, right hand, left hook, catching the kick, left hook off the break. She's good at catching kicks, which can be a problem for against Rose, but the way that Rose will throw like a round kick or a, or a side kick to the head and then she'll turn her knee down or, or he'll, she'll turn her foot over to the side, put the knee on like a, a, a parallel, you know, parallel angle, and then she'll kind of kick it away. So that way they can't really drag you into a shot because you have, your toes have to be pointed up your heel towards them. If you turn the heel, put the knee down and push away, you can kick them away, but it's also going to extend your range and make it harder for the opponent who caught the kick. In this case, it would be Wei Li to come back and throw a counter shot. 
Um, when Wei Li gets into those wide, wild exchanges, she stands in one spot and throws her combinations chin up in the air and just goes, da, 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 da. it's one, two, one, two, or one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, two, you know, but it's all standing in the same spot with not a lot of head movement. She doesn't get her head off the center line on the jab. She doesn't get her head off the center line when she throws the right hand, unless she goes with a left hook. Sometimes she'll go right hand, left hook. But even when she throws it, she's wide open, chin exposed. That doesn't mean that she's a sloppy striker. She's just sloppy in terms of her defensive ability when the opponent throws a counter shot off of something that she throws. So that is something that she's going to have to watch out with. And that is where I think Thug Rose Namajunas takes advantage in this fight. I think, you know, as Wei Li throws combinations, she's going to be able to slip, turn, roll, pivot, jab, jab on the wide shots of Wei Li, jab when she goes to throw the left hook. She's going to have to watch out when she throws the straight right. You know, like I said, Rose likes to kind of fake with the right hand. She'll lean forward, fake it, and then she'll pop it in there. When she pops that right hand in there, she's going to have to look out for a counter left hook coming off Wei Li. When she throws the jab, that's something I think she's got to look out for. Make sure you set up your jabs with your feints. So feint the jab and then throw the jab. Feint the jab and throw the jab. Because if you don't use feints and fakes, to set everything up against Wei Li, she's going to be ready to come back on the counter. And over the jab, it's a perfect counter to go over the jab with the right hand, which can follow into the wide left hook of Wei Li and cause trouble. And if she gets hit on the jaw with a clean power shot, she can get hit and get hurt and knocked out. And like I said, that that's something that everybody talks about, but they discredit the technical ability of Rose. And this is a dangerous fight. It's a completely dangerous fight. You know, I would venture to say that Wei Li is more likely to finish the fight if there is a finish on the feet, probably from countering Rose over the top or countering her with a left hook as she goes to pivot, you know, and angle off. That's probably going to be the best weapon for Wei Li is to land those counter shots, hurt her and drop her, and then obviously go on top of her and get the finish. Wei Li has more power, but sometimes speed is power. You know, precision beats power. You know what they say, precision beats power and timing beats speed. I don't really think anybody's as precise of a striker and as technical of a striker in that division as Thug Rose Namajunas. I don't think anybody is has as good of timing and as good of range management and cadence and hopping in and out, in and out, in and out, fake and faint, throw the jab, fake, pop, pop. You know, I don't think anybody's as good at manipulating the 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 range and getting the timing down of the opponent than. Rose Namajunas. Now, the problem is the longer the fight goes, it's a five-round fight. You know, after that third round, I think Rose Namajunas will significantly slow down. But the longer it goes, that's, you know, Wei Li slows down too. She will slow down as the longer the fight goes. And, you know, when it goes into the fourth and the fifth, if anybody's going to get a finish in those fourth and fifth, late third, fourth, and fifth rounds, it's probably going to be the champion, Wei Li Zhang. That's where she's going to be able to have Rose slow down. That's where she's going to be able to, to crowd her a little bit more and, you know, land the power shots. And the thing is, yeah, if she lands a clean power shot over and over again, or even if she lands clean on the chin, she's got the power to knock her out. But I think it's going to be a case of Rose is going to start quick. I think she's going to, you know, put the money in the bank in the first, the second, the third round, and just kind of have Wei Lee swinging at air, always, always getting in a, into range, you know, Faking with the right hand, stepping in like you're going to throw the left hook and hip bumping in and then pulling out. You know, I think that's going to be a lot of Rose's game. And I think she's going to, you know, kind of be the matador to the bull of Wei Li Zhang. She's going to fake and faint and hip bump and then pull away from the shot and then counter one, two, pull away, counter hook, two, 
pull away counter, double jab, right hand, left hook, pivot off. I mean, I think that's kind of what's going to happen in this fight. I think the kicks are going to be a, a big weapon for Rose. I think the body kicks can be a problem or a weapon for Wei Lee, but I think if she's going to have success with kicks, I would go with those inside low kicks, whether it's an inside low kick on the lead leg to drag her into your right hand or an outside low kick after a one, two, three combination or a one, two outside low kick, check left hook inside left low kick. I mean, you can throw all those kicks and stuff and that is what she's going to want to do. You have to put the, you have to put the money in the bank. They both do. Rose has to put the money in the bank with, with sticking and moving, popping the jab, popping the right hand, popping the one, two, moving around, you know, just, just constantly out point fighting her. Just pop, 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 pop. Just constantly, constantly doing that with, Wei Li, she's going to have to chop those low kicks and chop those legs and make it harder for Rose to get those angles, make it harder for her to move in and out, kind of like Joanna and Jacek did in their second fight. You know, make it harder for her to, to move in and out of range the later the fight goes. And then when she's stagnant, when she's stuck in one position because her legs are beat up, that's when you commit to your power shots. But it's close and it's tough. On the ground, like I said, I think I give Wei Li a little bit more of an advantage in terms of being able to, you know, control on the top and possibly get a submission. But I think, I think Wei Li has the better grappling and wrestling. I think Yo or uh, Rose Namajunas has the better jujitsu offensively and defensively. But I wouldn't recommend going to the ground with Wei Li. That's not really a good opportunity if Rose is going to set up. A submission, I would set it up off of a clinch attempt, get the body lock, find your way to get the back, get the hooks in, and get the rear naked choke standing up. Or drop her with a punch as she goes to get up, sprawl, spin, take the back, get the hooks in, and get the rear naked choke. But now you got to give me, I got to give you a pick. You know, um, who's going to win? And honestly, I'm going with Ann New. I think Rose Namajunas finds a way to outpoint her in those first three rounds, make it harder for Whaley to track down the movement, the range, the footwork, the angles of Rose Namajunas, make it harder for her to track down. And when she commits to those combinations, when she throws those three, four, five shots, but her head is on the center line and she's wide open, that's when Rose lands the one. That's when Rose lands the jab, the one, two, the two, three, the one, two, three, the double jab. That's when all that stuff lands. And the longer the fight goes, it's just going to add up. Like we said, precision beats power and timing beats speed. I think speed is pretty neck and neck. I think Wei Li might be a tad bit faster, but the precision and the accuracy and the movement and the setups, that all goes to Rose Namajunas. And that's why I'm banking Thug Rose here. I think Thug Rose wins this fight via a split decision. I think some people are going to give the fight to Wei Li. I think it's going to be a 48-47, three rounds to two for Thug Rose Namajunas to become the new strawweight champion of the world and, you know, probably rematch Wei Li or go into a third fight with Joanna and Jacek or whatever happens. That's how I see it playing out. So that's my pick. Thug Rose Namajunas to defeat Wei Li Zhang via, or Zhang Wei Li, I'm sorry, via a split decision. All right. Now we move to the finale. You know, the main event of the evening for all the marbles, a rematch in the 170-pound welterweight division for the crown after their first fight on six days' notice, Jorge Gamebred Masvidal stepped in to take the place of Gilbert Dorino Burns to challenge the Nigerian nightmare, the reigning defending welterweight champion of the world, Kamaru Usman. Now they run it back, this time on a full camp for Jorge Masvidal. It is the 
Oh, excuse me. It is the number four ranked Jorge Gamebred Masvidal versus the champion, the Nigerian nightmare, Kamaru Usman. This is a great fight. This is 100% a fight that everybody's going to want to tune into. I know it's going to be a little bit hard for people to believe in Jorge Masvidal going into this rematch because of how badly he was dominated in the first fight. Yes, he lost, but he won the first round primarily due to his kicking game. Um, the, the, Overhand right was good for him, the left hook, but it was mainly the body kicks, the front kicks, and the low kicks of Jorge Masvidal that were causing some problems for Kamaru Usman. And, you know, he was able to get some takedowns, but it wasn't as easy for Kamaru to get these takedowns as people really think that it was. I think a lot of people go in there and, and think, oh, well, he just got dominated in the wrestling department. He got out-wrestled and he got dominated. He got pushed up against the cage a lot, but Masvidal did stop a lot of takedowns. Use that wizard, you know, spread the hips apart, got the underhook, circled off the cage, rather, and then, you know, stopping the takedown with the sprawl, then transitioning to the body lock, then going with the overhook and the wizard. You know, he did have some good takedown defense. And he was able to get back up to his feet when he got taken down. So it's not like he would get taken down and get, you know demolished. He got his kick caught a few times. His kicks were caught, you know, cause he was going with the low kicks. They were caught, hiked up and shot into a double leg. And uh, that's how Kamaro actually got the first takedown of the fight, but it's not as easy to take down Masvidal as people think. And the accuracy of those takedowns for Kamaro, I don't believe were as great as people thought that they were. I can actually pull up the stats cause maybe I'm completely wrong and maybe I sound like an idiot, but to pull up the stats. They should have the stats on here somewhere. There we go. Usman versus Masvidal stats. So he was able to get... Here we go. See, this is what I'm talking about. Usman only landed 31% of his takedowns. He got 5 out of 16 takedown attempts. Yes, he's relentless. He shoots a ton of takedowns. He chains attempts together, you know, from single to double, back to head on the inside single, back to the body lock, back to the trips. Um, one thing he likes to do is he'll get that body lock. He will circle you. He'll bring you back towards his uh, his rear leg. And then as you defend that one and you get your hips back, he'll bring you back the other way and trip out your base leg and uh, and take you down from the body lock. So he will drag and then redrag you back to then get a trip in the clinch position in the body lock and get on top. Um, you look at the stats from their first fight, Usman landed 94 out of 151 strikes. That is a 62% significant strike accuracy rate. Masvidal landed 66 out of 125 strikes. That is a 52% significant strike accuracy rate. Total strikes, 263 of 341 for Kamaru Usman to 88 of 157. A lot of those 263 were foot stomps and shoulder strikes and knees to the body in the clinch up against the cage in the over-under position, you know, or the one underhook and controlling the opposite wrist of Masvidal or letting Masvidal control his opposite wrist and then using his head pressure and his shoulder pressure to grind into Masvidal and land the shoulder strikes, foot stomps, shoulder strikes, knees to the body, shoulder strikes, foot stomps, knees to the thigh. You know, just working, continuing to work and and put some pace and pressure on Masvidal and grind him out and get him tired because he did come into this fight on six days notice, which is something that, you know, something that I'm really, 
you know, that's really taken for granted in this fight. I, I mean, six days notice. Yes, he was training, you know, Poirier, his teammate kind of told him, hey, he's training, you know, whatever. But that's still not a training camp. He didn't have a training camp for Usman. He didn't have a full six to eight week training camp. This time he gets that full training camp. But I think we're going to see a lot of differences from Masvidal in this fight. I think Usman has gotten a lot better since their last fight as well. You look at the fight after this where he defended his belt against Gilbert Burns at UFC 258, and he looked great. His striking, switching stances, that jab was better than we've ever seen it. He would throw the jab from Orthodox. He pulled the jab of Gilbert Burns and then countered with a straight right, a pull counter straight right that stumbled and dropped Gilbert Burns and hurt him really bad. But the jab was working. He'd switch stance to southpaw and pop the jab from southpaw. Switch back to orthodox. Switch to southpaw. Straight left, right hook. That jab from southpaw was a piston. The jab was money, and that's what dropped Gilbert Burns, that right jab from southpaw. And here's the reason why it worked. I think I'm sure some people have already discussed this. I think I discussed this on my breakdown post-fight of UFC 258. The reason the jab was so effective from from Usman and it dropped him and that's what led to finishing him. Now, obviously he got dropped in the previous round with the jab from the lead side, the left side, which is the weak side, but, but that's where the jab always comes from. But when Usman switched to Southpaw and throws the jab, now the jab is coming from your power side. That right hand is already your power side. That's where normally all your power comes from. Now it's in front. Now the power is closer to the opponent and he also can't come over the top with the right hand which is what he did in the first in the fight in the first round. He came over the top of the jab of Usman and hurt him with the right hand. He countered the outside low kick with a left hook and stumbled Usman. He landed a good high kick where he was in orthodox. He switched to southpaw, touched the outside hand to get the outside foot, and landed a left high kick. I mean, there was some good work from Burns in that fight, and we haven't seen Usman hurt like that in his UFC career. And... Like I said, switching to southpaw was a big, big weapon and a, and a huge, huge demonstration of fight IQ, partially from his newly his new um, head coach in Trevor Whitman, who also coaches Thug Rosnami Yunus, who's on this fight card in the co-main event, and also coaches Justin Gaethje. He is a phenomenal, he's a wizard of the fight game. He's a wizard of the technicalities of switching up stances and flowing through stances in a com in, in, in mid combinations and everything like that. And, you know, Usman comes into this fight, 18 victories, one defeat. Masvidal comes into this fight, 35 wins, 14 losses was on a win streak of with wins over Darren Till, Ben Askren and Nate Diaz. And then obviously he lost to Usman. This is Kamaru Usman's twenty Usman's twentieth twentieth fight. This is Masvidal's fiftieth fight. Now, Usman won the first fight. You know he did he did very well. He landed some good shots. He got a lot of takedowns. Controlled him up against the cage in the over under position. I think we're going to see Usman look to control him up against the cage in the over under more in this fight. But I think we're going to see Usman a little bit more willing to stand in striking range and land shots. And, uh, and trade with Masvidal. Now, you don't want to trade too long because trading with a guy like Gamebred is going to get you knocked out. It can get you hurt because Masvidal is a technical striker. He's got very good technique. He's good with that light front leg 
hands high, you know, checking with the left hook, catching kicks and then countering with a right hand and a left hook, catching kicks and sweeping it through into a left hook, right hand, left hook. He's very good at catching kicks. He's very good at blocking kicks. He can he can step forward, lift the leg up to check, but then as he blocks that, as it looks like he's going to fake to check that kick, he'll go with that front uh, front like, like side stomp to the knee. He'll go with a front kick to the leg. He'll go with a side stomp to the knee. He'll use that to get outside foot on an on a opposite stance opponent, land the right hand, land the left hook. You know, there's a lot of tricks that Masvidal uses. One of his best weapons, and I think it's one of his most underappreciated weapons, is his body kick, his right power body kick, his left body kick from southpaw. They Those gave Usman a lot of trouble in this in the first fight. And I expect them to give him more trouble in this fight as well. I think we're gonna see we're gonna see those body kicks pay off. I think he's gonna fake the jab, fake the right hand, throw the body kick, fake, throw the body kick. I think the switch stance or the or the faint switch stance overhand that we see Masvidal use, where he's in orthodox, he'll briefly switch to southpaw, then switch back to orthodox as he closes the distance and come with an overhand right. That's how he knocked out Darren Till. It was a fake stance switch into southpaw back to orthodox to close the distance and come over the top. They think you're going to switch. You're coming forward. They'll back up and keep their, their guard low. They'll circle back and then boom, you'll run right into the overhand because you didn't really switch southpaw. You only fake the switch to close the distance and then come over the top from your original stance, which is orthodox. That can be a problem. But the thing is in the first fight, every time Masvidal tried to do that. He tried it three, four, five, six times. He telegraphed it, and it allowed Usman to get underneath it and get into a clinch position and then push Masvidal up against the cage or, you know, get into a double leg position, drop down to his knees, turn the corner, and get a double leg up against the cage. You know, there was some good work that he did in based off of those stance switches, those stance switch combinations. And that's a really what caused Usman to get into a lot of those clinch positions or the over-under or the wrist control in the underhook and pushing him up against the cage. That's where a lot of the work was done was off of the counter to the crowding switch stance or fake switch stance combinations of Masvidal to try to land that overhand right. Here's a way I think Masvidal can win this fight. He's got a full camp. I think he's going to be a lot better and more equipped to stuff the takedowns. I think it's going to be harder for Usman to get a lot of the takedowns. But I think based on how much better Usman's striking has got, I think that it's going to make Masvidal a little bit, a tidbit more hesitant to throw on the feet and uh, have him not be as aggressive. That's good. I think he shouldn't be as aggressive. I think he should fight a little bit more technical, a little bit more patient. I think you don't want to blow your wad in the first round. You want to go a little bit longer, and you want to have the that patient style to be able to counter with a left hook, to be able to counter with a right-hand left hook, throw the jab, throw the jab, fake the uppercut, and then go into your switch stance combinations. I think faking the uppercut for Masvidal or faking a knee is going to be his best weapons to set up that switch stance overhand because if you throw it just out in the open every time Usman's either going to back away or he's going to crowd you and go into a body lock duck under and then work for his takedowns or push you up the up against the cage and work for trips and takedowns from the clinch positions that's a big weapon for Masvidal but using that uppercut feint 
you know, we see um, Sean O'Malley use the uppercut fake to the straight right hand. It's a little bit different because Masvidal is going with that fake switch stance overhand as compared to a straight right. But I think using that, faking the jab, then faking the uppercut to, to get, you know, Usman to freeze up and not getting close to shoot the takedowns and then going for that fake switch dance overhand right is where he can catch Usman. Use that uppercut feint. Fake the knee. Throw a teeth. Then fake the teeth. Then go with the switch. If you can set up that switch stance combination off of the fakes and off of the fake kicks or the fake punches, the faint uppercuts, then you can land that punch and you can get into a better position to land that knockout shot. Now, um, I think elbows for Masvidal in the clinch can be of benefit, you know, framing off and trying to elbow kind of like we talked about with Wei Li Zhang, but you got to be careful because you miss that elbow. He, he gets a little bit further in on you. Um, he can switch it up to the, to the body lock and go with that drag, redag, redrag trip takedown where he drags you one way, brings you back and trips your leg out. Like we talked about. You know, I think that the striking of Usman under Trevor Whitman has gotten a lot better. I think the jab of Usman is going to dictate the pace in this fight. I think he's going to be willing to strike a little bit more because he's going to be using those jab feints, because he's going to fake the jab, because he's going to land. I think that's going to cause a lot of trouble for Masvidal because Masvidal is a technical striker. But if he comes in and throws wide shots and doesn't clean it up and throw straight technical punches to set up the overhands, that's going to be a problem. If you throw just wide punches, you're going to get countered with the jab of Usman like he did to Gilbert Burns. You're going to get countered with the pull counter right hand. You know, and and I don't necessarily think that Usman can catch Masvidal and knock him out cold. It's not going to happen. I posted a tweet where I said I think that Usman can get a TKO. I still believe that, but I don't think it's going to be by hurting him super bad on the feet and having him out on the feet and then knocking him out standing up. No, I think he's going to land good punches on the feet, get damaged by volume the later the fight goes, and then he can possibly take him down and get a ground and pound TKO stoppage. That's what I meant for people who didn't understand that. I think that that is a way that Usman can get a TKO. I do like Masvidal's chances in this fight. I do think he can get it done. I know he's a big underdog, but I do think he's going to cause problems for Kamaru Usman. I do think he can cause... Um, a lot of problems. I think he's going to hurt Usman at least once in this fight, but then the wrestling will take over. But I think the 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 overall improved striking and the, the improved jab of Usman can dictate this fight a lot more than people seem to believe. Um, if you look at the stats we already talked about, or we actually didn't talk about the stats for this fight, so that's my bad. Six feet to 5'11 for Usman, so he has a one-inch height advantage. Um, a two inch reach advantage for the champion Usman. That's going to come into play with that jab. Um, a 76 inches, 74 inch, 41 inch leg reach for Usman to a 39 and a half inch leg reach for Masvidal. I don't really think that's going to play a huge factor. Um, when you look at the win percentages, pretty close 47% of wins coming by way of knockout for Usman, who's the champion to 46% for Masvidal, 5% by submission to 6% by submission for Masvidal, and then 47% by decision for the champion to 49% by decision for the challenger. Average fight time, uh, a little bit longer for Usman, 16 minutes and 50 seconds to 13 minutes and 22 seconds for the challenger, Jorge Gamebred Masvidal. When you look at knockdown averages per 15-minute fight, again, neck and neck, 
0.48 for the champion Kamaru Usman to 0.49 for gamebred Masvidal. When it comes to significant strikes landed per minute, 4.66 for the champion to 4.2 for the challenger. 54% significant strike accuracy to 47% for Masvidal. So Usman's a little bit more accurate with his significant strikes. Significant strikes absorbed per minute, 2.33 for the champion to 3 for Jorge Masvidal. 58%, uh, hold on, 58% defense overall to a... Here we go. Let me go back because it, it got off the screen. 58% defense overall for the champion, Kamaru Usman, to a 65% defense overall for um, Masvidal. So Masvidal's better defensively all the way around on the feet when it comes to the stand-up game. When it comes to the grappling, this is where, you know, Mas or Usman is a little bit better. You know, this is where Usman takes stride and, and really showcases his dominant wrestling over everybody and shows them why he is known as the Nigerian Nightmare. 3.22 takedowns per 15-minute fight for Kamaru Usman to a 1.57 takedown average for, for Jorge Masvidal. 47% takedown accuracy for Usman, but he shoots a lot of takedown attempts to a 59% takedown accuracy for the challenger Jorge Masvidal. 100% takedown defense for Usman. He's never been taken down. 77% takedown defense for Masvidal. So he's not easy to take down. He has good takedown defense. He is good. I do think he'll get taken down by Usman, but he won't get taken down that easily in this fight. 0.14 submission average for 15-minute fight to 0.36 for Jorge Masvidal. Um, we're going down the stats. We're going over everything. I talked about the combinations I think Masvidal can use. I think for, for Kamaru, stick behind the jab. Look to counter everything Masvidal does with a jab. Enter into the clinch. Break away with hooks or elbows. Then go back to the jab. Go back to the jab. Fake the right hand. Go to the jab. Pull on the shots and throw the pull counter right hand. Those are going to be the weapons for Usman. And then when Masvidal gets a little bit of confidence on the feet, then you shoot in. You duck underneath and you go to the body lock. Go for those trip takedowns. Control from the top. Land ground and pound and try to continually grind out Masvidal, kind of like what you did in the first fight, but use a little bit more striking so that it makes um, the takedown a little bit less telegraphed and the takedown entries or the clinch entries a little bit less telegraphed when you're able to be comfortable on the feet. For Masvidal, like we already said, use that uppercut, uppercut feint. Use that feint to uppercut feint to, to fake stance switch overhand right so that it gets Usman to duck under and cover up but then it gets him to not shoot the takedown, so he's still in position. Then you can enter into that overhand right. Use your jab. Use the body kicks from the left side and the right side. Chop the inside low kicks. All of that stuff, counter over the jab of Usman with the overhand right. All of that can lead Masvidal to get a victory. I think the body kicks are his best weapons. I think using that uppercut feint to overhand right and the body kicks and the jab are the weapons that Masvidal can use to become and new and win that welterweight world title. For Usman, stick behind the jab, use your fakes and feints, enter into takedowns, but be able to stand on the feet and be a little bit more comfortable. When it comes down to it, I'm going to go with the champion. I'm going to go with Ann Still. I think that Usman, Usman's ability to be more comfortable on the feet and his ability to stick behind a jab and not be as reliant on getting those takedowns makes it 
harder for the opponents to see the takedowns coming, and it makes them more hesitant on the feet because of that crisp jab. Like Trevor Whitman said, you're a world champion because of your jab. So I think the jab is going to work for Usman. I think it's going to make Masvidal a little bit hesitant to enter on those long combinations. I think he's going to get hit with some body kicks. I think Masvidal will hurt him. And to be all quite honest, I'm pulling for game bread. I love Masvidal. He's one of my favorites. I want him to win this fight. So I'm hoping I'm wrong on this pick, but I'm going with Usman to win this fight via a fourth round TKO. I think the jab is going to piece up Masvidal on the feet. I think it's going to going to keep catching him, bloody him up. I think it's going to open up the takedown attempts. He's going to get tired the longer the fight goes. He's going to eventually get on top position. And I think he lands vicious ground and pound on the top. The, in the fourth round, and the ref pulls him off, and he gets the TKO finish. Like I said, I'm pulling for Masvidal, but I'm going with my official pick to be the champion, the Nigerian nightmare, Kamaru Usman, to win this fight, retain his welterweight crown via a fourth-round TKO. All right, guys, that's it. That's it for today. Um, I hope you enjoyed my UFC 261 predictions. Obviously, UFC 261 takes place this Saturday night, April 24th, from Jacksonville, Florida, with the first time UFC fans have returned to almost full capacity since the pandemic. That is 15,000 fans in attendance for UFC 261. We have three title fights, Usman versus Masvidal 2, Thug Rose versus Weili Zhang, or Zhang Weili for the strawweight championship, and then Jessica Andraj versus Valentina Shevchenko for the women's flyweight championship. We also have phenomenal fights such as Anderson or uh, Uriah Hall versus Chris Weidman and Anthony Smith versus Jimmy Crute. Make sure to tune in. Make sure to get this podcast and these predictions out to anybody you wish. This podcast, the Touch Em Up podcast, is available anywhere podcasts are distributed. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Breaker, Anchor, and many, many more. You can follow me on Instagram at Glorious M&M. That is G-L-O-R-I-O-U-S-M-A-N-D-M on Instagram. And then on Twitter, you can follow me at ArmbarNation316. That is A-R-M-B-A-R-3-N-A-T-I-O-N-316 on Twitter. Follow this podcast on YouTube. I have fighter breakdowns and technical breakdowns available. That include um, Jorge Masvidal. That include Peter Yan. That include... Um, Connor McGregor, Jeff Neal, Corey Sandhagen, you know, a bunch of technical breakdowns on my channel, a breakdown of Sean O'Malley versus Marlon Chito Vera. Um, there are a ton of technical breakdowns where I go through fights and slow down footage to give you my technical analysis on fighters techniques, their game plans and techniques they use throughout their entire career. Um, please feel free to leave a uh, review for this podcast on Apple podcasts, any review I can get that will help grow this podcast is greatly appreciated. You can also send donations to the podcast through the donation link on the page. Um, there should be a link in the description of this podcast where you can donate to the podcast. Anything you can, anything you can do to donate and make this podcast better and help us grow, get it out to your friends, get it out to your family, fans of MMA, fans of pro wrestling, anything you can do to get this podcast out and make it the number one podcast in all of mixed martial arts and pro wrestling is greatly appreciated. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Have a good night, everybody, and enjoy the fights this weekend.